1: accessed entry 328de dot de certificate number three five four three five the De Havilland Beaver
0: have you in your in your all your travels flown via small aircraft?
1: I think we, this may have come up on the show once before, I have taken off in a small plane and never landed in one. Wow. I'm, oh, you I'm jumped out of there. an airplane? Yes. You solved it. You solved the mystery. When did you do that? And uh, what were, I mean, what were the circumstances? College freshman. I had a, friend, a roommate that wanted to do it and then he chickened out, but I was like, I'm still going to do it. I'm no chicken. So we drove up to like some little airfield in Snohomish somewhere. Sure. And I, I, think I jumped I'm, out of a
0: plane. I, I've jumped. Out of an airplane from a little airport in Snohomish, it was probably the same airport.
1: That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Except it's a little bit emasculating because the first time you do it, either you either need to have a static line attaching you to the plane that pulls your cord, right? Because you can you cannot be trusted in that moment. No. To do the right thing, you'd think it would be easy, but apparently it's a stressful moment. Yes. Or or you have to jump out with a large man on your back with a with a parachute of his own. You're arguably your you're on his front
0: rather than yes. Than- He being on your back. You
1: are bottoming, is is what I'm trying to convey. And which did you choose? I chose the burly man without even hearing the second thing. (laughs) Because here's the thing, you don't get any free fall. Like, I wanted wanted kind of the zero-G thing, and you don't get that if your chute comes out as soon as you're off the plane. You just are kind of dangling for a while, which seemed a little scarier, honestly.
0: Well, I chose the static line, for a couple of reasons, one, I did not want the emasculating experience of being strapped to another man. There's no photos because I wanted. I guess today you could selfie that if you yeah. wanted. Well, there is a photo. They took a picture of me. Um, I, 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 but I wanted the solitude of hanging from mm. my uh, of my parachute. I didn't want somebody like Are you. Okay, how's it going down there? I was a little afraid of that. What is the
1: solitude like?
0: Well, so uh, you know, you're in. The, you, you and I were both probably almost certainly in the same airplane, which was. Probably a Cessna 206 that had its
1: door removed. That's about right,
0: and no seats in it, and you're just kind of bouncing around on the floor of this
1: this uh, 206. I don't remember much. It was a little bit, you know, you have you have something ahead of you to look forward to. What they do with the static line jumpers, and and what that is, is
0: it's a piece of webbing that's clicked. It's like you see in World War II movies where you click your webbing in to the to a little rope inside the plane, Geronimo, and it pulls your parachute for you. Yeah and the the reason is as you say um the bo- <laughs> one in four persons does not <laughs> well i think it would be more than that the oh, wow. the experience of of that kind of falling where you're not, it's not where you're just falling and you keep falling uh your body has no context for it and at least in my experience i almost blacked out i fought to keep awareness spatial awareness and i it would have i mean i i would not have successfully found the, the tab and you had it. one job, John,
1: you had one job. But it's they, a very
0: short to do list. They pull a great trick on you, or at least they did on me, um, to get you to jump. Cause I'm sure this is a regular problem for them. They get a bunch of people up there and they're like, I don't want to jump. They said, okay, just go stand on the, put your feet on the yeah, tire. Exactly. Did yeah. they do this? Yeah, to yeah.
1: this little strut thing that connects to the,
0: put your feet on the tire and grab the strut and you're like, okay, I can do that. I can put my feet on the tire. Like I haven't jumped yet. And then they said, well, with with the the static line people, they said, just kick your feet off and hold on to the strut. And I imagined that I was going to kick my feet off, hold on to the strut and be flying like Superman, you know, holding onto the plane, Uh still have a chance to make a decision or to put my feet back on the, you know, whatever. I hadn't decided to jump. And once you move your feet off the wheel, of course, you have one second before you're You fall off. You fall off, basically. But it was great. I mean, I had a I had a wonderful experience. But there's a picture of me in that split second where I'd kicked my feet off, but hadn't fallen.
1: The clue I had that my brain was not working right is that the whole thing seemed to last about thirty seconds. Yeah, like there's just your your brain is not ready for that experience. You have you have nothing to compare it to. But was that the only time you'd been in a small plane? It was until just last week in Belize, uh we flew back from one of the keys, one of the islands back to the airport and you know we were on Mayan Planet Air or whatever right. which really just turned out to be I, I, you you would know what the plane was but <laughs> a a, guy. Little, a little tiny plane and you know there's nothing between you and the cockpit there's just a big guy up there how and many seats? I want to say 8 to 10. No, okay. So what is that? Is is there some kind of Cessna that can fit that many?
0: You'd call that a mid-sized plane. I mean, it it could have been a it could have been a lot of things like a, But it was it was definitely bigger
1: than what I would have jumped out of.
0: Was there a person in addition to the pilot
1: that no. was like, "Welcome to the plane?" No, cuz I've flown on those before. Yeah. You know, just little regional Hoppers, right? No, this was just one guy, and you're kind of sitting in the. Oh, and and somebody had to come sit shotgun, like right. One of the passengers sat shotgun. You didn't. You didn't choose. The, I, what, she had I, instrumentation. I would have thought. Uh, I would have thought Dylan would have jumped up there. Uh, it, it was assigned. I see. There's assigned. no. Uh, yeah, this is Central America. They they tell you what to do. There's a guy <laughs> with a gun. Uh,
0: well, that's interesting. You know, you've lived in the Northwest a long time, and I think there there are a lot of small planes in the Northwest. Um, but it, but it's, it's always surprising to me how few
1: people actually yeah, you end can, up being on one. You, 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 would have to try. You, you yeah. live your whole life without anybody being like, i up in a, I, I guess my parents have a neighbor out in Squim who's a pilot and uh, an air, a commercial airline pilot. And there's a little airstrip in back of the house where they keep a private plane and they have just flown over to Seattle before. Sure. And I think they got back to the Olympic Peninsula before we got home to our neighborhood Last time we met them if downtown. If you if
0: you frequent the San Juans, I mean the, the the quickest way to get there is
1: by small plane. I have never taken the seaplane up there, but I should.
0: Here in Seattle, there's a company called Kenmore Air, among several small plane operators that that fly out of Lake Union, and uh, they are kind of a famous regional airline. And they're globally famous for uh, for some of the work that they do. But there are people that get off work on Friday and. Take the bus down to Kenmore Air and get on a plane, and are
1: home at their San Juan house. You know by dinner time. I'm always shocked that they are taking off and landing from Lake Union, which, if you don't know Seattle well, is the lake between downtown and it's kind of the northern residential neighborhoods. It's always, you know, on a nice day, it's full of boats, boats. and boaters. And
0: the university
1: is it, north. It, it of connects the- to both Lake Washington and to the Puget Sound via the ship canal. And uh, there's really no runway or. Really, there's as I understand it, there's really nothing regulatory giving Kenmore Air any kind of right of way. They just have to put down a plane in a place where there's no paddleboarders or or boats. What's what's uh, what's
0: what's wonderful about floatplane pilots is that they really can put those planes down on a dime. And when you look at Lake Union on a summer day and you see one of these floatplanes coming in for a landing, you absolutely think, what?
1: I assume there must be some lane that boats had to clear out of, and there is not.
0: There isn't, and uh, I think most seasoned Lake Union boaters know to not like direct their boat at a at a landing <laughs> seaplane. But no, there's uh, it. It ends up being a thing where there's surprisingly more room on that lake than than you might you might first think. But as they're coming in, you know they're they're flaring their plane, they're slowing it way down, and I think they can see they they, they can always find a path.
1: And of course, as an Alaska lad, you probably have other float plane experiences.
0: A lot. My dad was a small plane pilot, and I spent a lot of time in small planes. I you had have my, a pilot's license. So. I had a, a student pilot's license when I was a teenager, but I was in the Civil Air Patrol, which will be a future uh, episode of the Omnibus. Or past, if you're listening out of order. Right, of course. Or past, if you're listening from the future. They're all past episodes. <laughs> um, but I've spent a lot of time in small planes and in float planes, and my dad had a float rating so we would fly um but also a lot of my friends i mean my next door neighbor kept a set of floats in his front yard in the winter cuz his plane was on skis in the winter wow. and then in the summer he, the floats would disappear cuz he'd put them on the plane but it was a, it's very common up there but i've also flown via kenmore air uh several times to the islands here uh, you know, we played the Doe Bay Festival several years in a row. Where is that? Doe Bay is on Orcas Island. Okay. It's a, a former nudist colony encampment that then became a music festival. It's owned by a guy named Joe Brotherton, who is like a local empresario, lawyer, neat, neat guy who, who's basically his son-in-law said, "Why don't we put on a music festival here?" Because there's no people. Uh, but I guess
1: people will come.
0: Well, it's a camp camping thing. You know, yeah. you go up there and camp and and play banjos. But uh, they flew me in via Kenmore Air a couple of times and, let, you know, land at the little harbor, a 15-minute drive from the festival.
1: I had a friend do it once and he works at Gates and he just loved walking down to the lake with a briefcase, getting on a plane and then walking off in the San Juan. So great. It's
0: really a, a wonderful, and you know, you I think you can buy, a, Kenmore Air will send you a, uh, sell you a booklet of tickets where you buy 10 and you get the 11th free or something like that <laughs> for people that do that. But one of the planes that you'll see down at Kenmore Air, and one of the planes that's uh, that's the most famous of uh, of all the planes that does this kind of work, this short takeoff and landing seaplane, bush plane kind of um, work, is the De Havilland Beaver. Which within airplane circles and airplane people are just like all kinds of motorhead people, car people, motorcycle people. They have they They develop real bonds with certain pieces of machinery. you know, certain airplanes take on legendary status.
1: Um, and there's a consensus, right? like this is this is a good this is a good one, and this is a bad one. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I mean, an airplane that's a dog uh, that pilots will avoid, I mean, those airplanes go away because because they hit the sides of mountains well, because I mean, there there are, there's there are whole car clubs devoted
1: to the Edsel or devoted to. I saw an Edsel the other day. They're weird looking, aren't they? I was, I was eye-popping. I guess there's not that many left just because nobody bought them.
0: Yeah, you don't see them. And when you do, I mean, they're they're extraordinary. And I think at, for their time, they were really well designed. Like they have a lot of bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you see one in the wild, I saw one too, like in the middle of the night at a gas station in the South End. And I pulled up, I was like, what's with the Edsel? And I went into the gas station and there was a guy in there with like, Jet black slicked back hair, neck tattoos, uh, wearing like cuffed, unwashed jeans. And like a young guy? Uh, no, you know, like a guy 40 years old. And I said, you know, nice Edsel. And he was like, yeah, I know, right? Like, Who's driving that cool car? And then this, like this guy that looked like Waldo with a little hat and a striped shirt and glasses was like, "Yeah, thanks, you know, we're restoring our Ettsel." And out he goes. I just felt like such a dupe. And then the the guy with the neck tattoos got into a Honda Civic and that his girlfriend was driving. The nerds took over. But but within within airplane circles, I mean, there of course anything any. Vehicle is going to have its fans, right? But airplanes have that third dimension, um, which is up and down. That's what I. That's what I hear about airplanes. I'm no and, expert, but and that means that you know if like if Jay Leno's uh, Porsche 911 breaks down on on Laurel Canyon Drive, he just makes a phone call and somebody comes and gets him. Uh, but, hey, my
1: uh, my car is broken now.
0: But if you're you know, if your bush plane breaks down, uh, you could be in real trouble. So,
1: is there is there more of a bond like the way a human would have had to a horse five hundred years ago? Like because you're literally putting your life in its hands. In terms of of bush
0: pilotry, and bush bush pilot is a word or is a uh, is a term of art for a certain kind of um, a certain kind of pilot that that works in territory where there aren't airports. Um, Flying or or where the airports are rough, so most of northern Canada, Alaska, Australia, the, the Siberia, um, Central America, and South America. There are lots and lots Africa, lots of parts of the world that aren't served by regular airlines that don't have uh, super detailed facilities or any facilities. But there are still people there that need. Food and medicine and supplies and they need to come and go and it's there the, often aren't roads either.
1: So it's the Toyota Hilux of the air.
0: It's the Hilux. Well, the the Beaver is is one of the Hiluxes of the air. Or Hilaces. Hylases. And, and arguably, kind of uh, 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 maybe the most legendary, g- glamorous one of the the sort of bush planes that 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 define the. Define the era and define the genre.
1: What's glamorous about the beaver?
0: Since we're talking about the bush. What's glamorous about the beaver? Where Um, where to begin? Well, so the de Havilland Company started in the United Kingdom. Uh, It was a, um, there was a, there was an airplane manufacturer called Airco, which was, I know, right, great name, which was at the time the largest airplane manufacturer in the in Britain, if not the world, and they were uh, they made a lot of the airplanes that fought in World War One. A lot of the sort of iconic British fighter planes and and bombers and transport planes of World War One were all manufactured by Airco, mm-hmm. and uh, and a large percentage of them were were designed by a guy named Geoffrey de Havilland. He was their he was aircraft designer. Airco probably ended up making 30% of the airplanes that fought on the Allied side in World War II, and de Havilland designed about 30% of those.
1: He was a cousin of Olivia de Havilland, the Gone with the Wind actress, who is essentially the last surviving movie star of Hollywood's golden age. She's 103 years old. She's alive today. She is. uh, Well, I don't know. I haven't checked her this morning. Sure. But she is 103 years old.
0: That's fantastic. I had no idea. And uh, And first cousins, I believe. I had no idea that Jeffrey De Havilland was uh, was related to Olivia De Havilland. How wonderful! I guess there can't be that many people named De Havilland. That's such a that's such a Ken Jennings little uh, asterisk.
1: It's a perfect movie star slash um, manufacturer last name. Yeah, I mean, imagine if instead you're named, you know, Sprongstein or something, right. Smoot Holly, and you have to change to de Havilland but they didn't they no. were it really it's it shows that naming is destiny like you mm. you have the inherent self-confidence that comes with being named Sir Jeffrey de Havilland it's really wonderful isn't it Geoffrey Geoffrey de Havilland like no wonder that guy could invent an amazing airplane his whole life people have been like oh Jeffrey de Havilland come in here he comes that trips off the tongue does does the name Ken Jennings does it have it has an internal rhyme
0: or an internal sort of Half rhyme.
1: I saw a crossword the other day where the clue was Ken Jennings has four of them, and I could not figure out what it was. Ends. Ends. That is correct. It was E N S. Uh, so yes, there is a. It just. It does kind of. It has a, an internal consonant. Yeah,
0: that's why you've been so successful
1: in life. It's the four ends. It's your name. The but, four ends of Ken Jennings. But people do. People do tend to call me Ken Jennings. Sure. Like Charlie Brown. All one
0: word. I'm John Roderick in the same way, yeah. but only because every fourth kid, boy or girl, uh, that was born in 1968 was named John.
1: So you have to distinguish yourself. You have to do something to distinguish yourself. John Roderick. That's why you were John R. Yeah, John R. That's right on all my <laughs> Valentines.
0: Uh, after World War I, there was, um, maybe more so than at any other time, a a real glut of war surplus airplanes after world war ii a lot of the airplanes you know the fighter planes of course aren't going to be sold to the general public like sure here why don't you take a p40 tomahawk and you know what would you do with it just go fly around the local airport i mean there certainly were some civilian sales of that stuff and all of the transport planes went on or a lot of them went on and found life civilian life but you
1: know there's no there's no public use for a b-17 bomber you can see why there's just you can't uh swing a cat in america without coming across some kind of old airplane museum staffed by uh you know 82 year old greatest generation vets in their Uh in their baseball caps and bomber jackets who volunteer every tuesday yeah if anybody shows up to come look at the uh the old world war ii planes but the
0: vast majority of those planes that tens and tens of thousands of them were just scrapped in the immediate after war years but just for the metal? Just for, just to get them out of the way. I mean, you know, they were piling <laughs> up at the ends of runways. Of <laughs> I mean, they really were. They was just like, what are we going to do with, we made thousands of these to defeat the enemy and now they have no use. They should have right? just crashed them into each
1: other. Yeah. Now that's fun. Sell they sh- tickets. They should have sunk them and made artificial reefs out of them. Wouldn't that,
0: that be cool?
1: That's actually what they should have done. I'm sure there's been some serious research on doing that. There's so,
0: Well, they that, they did sink battleships, to, or I'm sorry, like frigates and cruisers. There are Navy ships used that way. But after World War One, it was still early days of aviation, and um, all you had to do was take the gun off of a uh, you know, off of a sopwith camel and it would become a bomb or a barnstormer. I mean, you could a biplane that was used in war and a biplane that was used to deliver the Pony Express mail. Uh, they weren't that different, and so you could
1: just go up to a stop with Camel, get out a screwdriver, take off the gun, take the hold gun it, hold it to the owner, <laughs> and say, "I'm taking your plane. I'm a barnstormer now." Yeah, it's that old that
0: old uh, that old reason that they don't sell. They won't hand you a box of shotgun shells if you've just bought a shotgun. <laughs> Makes sense. But uh, but that uh, that glut of of uh, like surplus airplanes really affected the fortunes of the Airco company. Um, because all of a sudden, the they weren't selling airplanes to the government anymore, and there wasn't a
1: civilian market for planes. There's there's people walking on wings yeah. coast to coast. That's right. Nobody needs a plane.
0: You could crash an, an old Airco plane, walk away from it, <laughs> go buy another one, crash that one.
1: You could actually walk across America, hands across America style, just on the wings of... of crashed Airco <laughs> aircraft. Uh.
0: And so there was a there was a kind of a funny little bit of uh uh company gamesmanship the BSA company which which is famous for making motorcycles but also small arms and so forth bought the Airco company but bought them just as they went bankrupt and in the and and there was a little there was some tomfoolery and in the in the moment that BSA realized that Airco had gone uh that they had basically bought a defunct company uh, Jeffrey de Havilland was sort of standing there in the moment, a new employee of BSA, and said, why don't I take the Airco tooling and some of my own designs and just sort of break off and start my own airplane company, the de Havilland company? And de Havilland became a a, um, a vital part of British aerospace. And and we we think of, because we're Americans, we're very chauvinistic about things like well about everything but <laughs> but we think of airplane uh design and the aircraft industry as being a very american dominated industry because the Wright brothers flew for the first time here, and Boeing became one of the largest or the largest uh, aircraft manufacturer and we you know we've made a lot of airplanes here, but the early days of of airplanes all the way through the mid 20th century. Britain was a real innovator and. um,
1: Rolls Royce, right? Started out making aircraft engines.
0: Rolls Royce, but also uh, De Havilland was Mm -hmm. one of the uh, early sort of jet manufacturers before the seven Oh seven, even there.
1: Oh, they made jets.
0: Yeah. Their comment. So they were around
1: into the fifties and. They were. Sixties.
0: And the French too, you know, were, were, um, were aircraft pioneers. But so De Havilland started making, you know, planes for, the, for the army, for the civilian market, he made the the moth, which was kind of the universal trainer of the Commonwealth countries.
1: Little sort of balsa wood, learn to fly kind of airplane. So we're not troubled by the lame name because it was kind of a lame plane. It was a little.
0: It was a moth. Basically, M- moths
1: are supposed to be small.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then throughout World War II, De Havilland was instrumental in in the war effort. Most most famously, making the Mosquito, which was a which was a kind of Fighter bomber airplane that at I know also a bad name. I, I don't
1: think they should be insects. You're wincing. I mean, I, at least the mosquito has has weaponry. Right. It can it can bite. So I I, I get that, but it's an annoyance. It's it, an it's, annoyance. It, it easily gets slapped away by its only enemy. Right. Compare it to the
0: Spitfire.
1: Exactly. It's spitting fire. There's a world full of flying birds and bats that are all cool as hell. You don't have to be like the ladybug. Yeah. I don't
0: know. The mosquito ended up being a very versatile airplane. Although at first you wouldn't, it's kind of like, what is it
1: for? It's a little bit of a. It's big. It's bigger than it's most bigger fighters. Than,
0: it's got two engines, but it's too small to be a bomber. It, you know, it sort of seemed like, well, maybe it's a surveillance plane, maybe it's a ground attack aircraft, but it ended up being used for all those things: mm-hmm. fighting, bombing, ground attack. Uh, it, and it was the mosquito was made almost completely of wood. So one of the, the in this. In this era, the beginning of World War II, a lot of airplanes were made primarily of wood. And by the end of the war, all airplanes were made of steel. It was, a, it was a transition, or most of them, made of fighter planes were made of metal.
1: If I was getting shot at, I think that's the thing that would make me want to switch from wood to steel.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, steel's not going to burn quite the same way. Right. But also, a bullet can go right through a fabric wing and do very little
1: damage to the airplane. Oh, interesting. So there's advantages to... To these lightweight wood frame planes in wartime,
0: yeah, I mean, i I think, I think fire is is a major disadvantage, and I think s- what steel allows you to do is go faster, um, and speed ends up being the being being the killer advantage. But the De Havilland company, there was so much um, so much need for wartime manufacturing, and and also uh, a need within the Commonwealth for a place. For pilots to train, where they weren't—I mean, if you can imagine being a student pilot in southern England in 1940 or 39—every time you went up, like, "All right, let's go up," and you know, I'll teach you to fly, and then all of a sudden, you're surrounded by Messerschmitts. Um, and so, Canada became uh, a place where there was a lot of flight training happening. You know, it was a—it was a breadbasket, but also a manufacturing hub for for the war effort and De Havilland started a Canadian branch to manufacture mosquitoes and to manufacture moths.
1: And um, where, where was this just industrial Southern Ontario? Yeah, or? it was
0: in Ontario. Yeah. Um, uh, and it became, you know, it became a, uh, kind of a vital part of the war effort, making these, these designs, these de Havilland designs from UK de Havilland.
1: And if you're going to make anything that's easy to get back to the, back to Europe, you know, it's a plane. It's an airplane. It's like these people who go to Volvo or go to Sweden and drive their Volvo home.
0: Yeah. Drive it. Just drive it home as long as you live in Denmark That's or right. Spain. Or I guess you could drive to.
1: You could drive to. uh Thailand. Thailand if you wanted, but. Right. Could you? Mm. That seems like a great. What if, what if we did a show?
0: <laughs> Ken and John drive from Stockholm to Thailand. <laughs> In a new Volvo. In our new Volvo. (laughs) We've always wanted
1: to have one and to have it for some reason in Bangkok. Uh,
0: But after the war, there was sort of a same problem. Um, There was now a, there was a glut of aircraft on the world market after World War II. uh, And aircraft companies needed to make a transition. They couldn't, you know, they'd been making mosquitoes, but you
1: can't, Use a
0: mosquito to 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 crop dust. Or, Think about
1: the contraction after all those hefty government contracts they were used to. Those yeah. guys, those guys were loving World War Two, and a lot of
0: companies. I mean, this is this is part of why America transitioned to a consumer economy was that some of that all those jobs had to convert into something, and it ended up being ice boxes. Um, Iceboxes and slingshots and BB guns. You know, all the stuff that made America great. Yeah,
1: the three things that everyone <laughs> wanted. Every 50s housewife just wanted three things. An icebox, a slingshot, and a BB gun. And then she was content. That was it. She, could, she could watch her program. There was no more war. Now, even though we are together recording, John, we are sitting eight feet or so apart because we are responsible citizens of the pandemic. And we, like I assume many of our Present listeners are social distancing
0: we are social distancing we're doing it as a matter of of uh normal habit, but also you and I both are uh, are sequestering ourselves with our families and not venturing out,
1: not being agents of contagion it's the right thing to do agents of contagion agents of contagion I love that record killer killer band uh but uh you I know, have been going to
0: the beach the because when you're walking around on the beach, you can see someone coming from a long way away and avoid them. And duck. And <laughs> duck behind a dune or some sawgrass. In our case, duck behind a big gooey duck. Uh,
1: that's why they're called gooey ducks, yeah. because they're large enough that you can duck behind, duck behind them. them. Uh, like And so we are, like you, uh, social distancing. And yet we can bridge that distance between us through the miracle of podcasting in general, the omnibus in particular.
0: We're, We're going hoping- to keep making this show... Uh, as long as we can.
1: We hope that the resilience and constancy of the omnibus gives you some sense of that in your disrupted daily life. And uh, please believe that John and I are convinced that uh, although we talk a lot about the cataclysmic destruction of humankind, we don't think it is scheduled for this calendar year.
0: No, it feels like our response, our collective response, um, has been really like a cheering effort on our part to protect the vulnerable. And by our part, I mean... Uh,
1: the people of the world. Kind of like society just kind of has decided. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of awful people that are still going to bars or whatever, right. where legal. But in general, we've kind of decided here's the trolley problem. We have decided to run the trolley over a lot of our habits and social institutions and pastimes and even economic well being in order to keep it off that other track that has 2.2 million elderly and immunocompromised Americans. Right. So good for us. We picked and, the right track.
0: And it is particularly difficult for people that work in service industries. I mean, if you are, if you work in a restaurant, for instance, um, yeah,
1: this is not academic this anymore.
0: Is, this, uh, this is bad times and creative people, especially who depend on, um, being able to perform or, or work in an industry that, that, uh, as a customer service component, you they, and
1: I were probably both going to be on the road somewhat this spring, and now we're we're not we've both canceled an awful lot of travel plans and
0: not not rescheduling them because it's unclear. I just got an email saying that uh, my daughter's school is now going to be out of session for an additional month. So it just keeps i think I
1: don't think we're going to see
0: school again this this year. But Omnibus
1: is going to continue, right. despite all the
0: interruptions. Um, Infuriating, my now stay-at-home daughter, who stands in the doorway and glares at us as we <laughs> spend all afternoon
1: talking. Well, we are in the room with all her Barbies and Legos and Star Warses. That's right. She's not
0: allowed in here now. Uh,
1: but anyway, Omnibus is going to be here for the duration. Um, if you are still gainfully employed, you know where our Patreon is, and you, we would love your support. Uh, if you're not, Good news. The omnibus is uh, one thing that is as free as it ever was, even before they roll out universal basic income.
0: Free and also, hopefully, uh, like the one bit of media you can consume that will not generally ever refer to the coronavirus, except...
1: Except that we mention the end of the world, like, at the top and bottom of every single show. Right. But just to reassure you, this isn't it. We're going to be fine. When we say that, imagine an asterisk that says... Not we, coronavirus. Right. We mean
0: asteroids or earthquakes or volcanoes. Godzillas. Or other plagues. Werewolves. But not this plague. Yeah. Another <laughs> different one. Sure. A worse plague. This one, we're going to be fine. The de Havilland company ended up um, separating from de Havilland UK. And uh, the, the United Kingdom de Havilland company suffered some, uh, some pretty devastating defeats. They had they put a lot of their hopes and fears on the comet which was a, a early and fast and sleek jet transport or jet passenger plane mm-hmm. and then several of them crashed including one very famously at an air show oh that's not what you want and it really torpedoed uh, the company and that Haviland ended up getting bought and you know subsumed and then dissolved as happened
1: one bad jet killed off that's a I guess that's a warning sign for our friends at Boeing.
0: that's right one bad jet for instance a seven thirty seven max if you're looking for for example a, a scapegoat uh, in Canada it uh, the company was nationalized and became a crown corporation but immediately after the war, they were kind of searching for a reason to exist and they went. Uh, kind of unusually for an aircraft company, usually a company like this, when they're looking for a new product, uh, they go to aircraft designers who are sitting and tinkering like, can you make it faster? Can you make it sleeker? You know, the Howard Hughes version of what the next product is going to be. Uh,
1: Steve Jobs stuff.
0: Yeah, or like, can you, you know, let's cut costs and make a thing lighter and faster so forth. But de Hevland had sort of the advantage of, in Canada, there being um, already like a a burgeoning community of pilots and adventurers who had become necessary for the north of Canada to kind of
1: exist, for it to communicate, for goods and services to... Because there's no infrastructure. There's none. If you don't have a certain number of People who know what they're doing up there, there can't be communities or settlement or, or uh, what is there already? Petro? Is there already oil exploration going on up there? Or?
0: Well, a lot of mineral exploration. In mm. fact, like the uh, like uranium was discovered at Great Bear Lake, and that was that was part of what you know propelled the um, the Manhattan Project was the discovery of this, you know, this. Lo- basically, so, okay. local uranium. So
1: you're saying Canada could have got the bomb
0: first. Canada is morally culpable for Hiroshima, <laughs> and every Canadian should remember that when they imagine wake up a parallel
1: universe where Canada gets the bomb first. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like they're like, we're not selling this to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. No, what like, would they we're, use we're, it for? We're keeping all our uranium. They uh, they use it to blow up uh, Milwaukee and Seattle and <laughs> Vermont. <laughs> they advance southward uh there was a
0: one of the advantages that that De Havilland had and that Canada had was um the legendary figure of Punch Dickens Punch Dickens was a Canadian <laughs> explorer and early pilot who when you see a picture of Punch he just he so fits the bill you know he's wearing a a uh, fur-lined parka and Sort of leaning against some plane that's held together with staples and baling wire, uh, and he was a, he was an adventurer type and flew all across the Arctic until he became a legendary figure. All of the, um, you know, the Inuits of the North all knew him and called him the. They had a nickname for him, like
1: they called him Snow Eagle. And then, that is better than Punch Dickens. Punch, well, punch Dickens is a pretty don't, good name. Don't if stand you're, too close to a pilot named Punch <laughs> Dickens. I'll tell you that.
0: But he be, he he ended up flying a million miles in, in the Arctic in the course of his life and lived to be in his late nineties. You know, one of the wow. rare bush pilots that actually that actually didn't die in a in a <laughs> in a fiery crash. But he was the first pilot to fly along the the border of the Arctic Ocean. You know, to, made that it, what probably incredible transit in its time and even now. But sort of a legendary character and also uh beloved and known by all people operating kind of in that bush pilot culture. And De Havilland contracted or consulted with Punch, and Punch went and consulted with his um his fraternity of of fellow pilots and compiled a list of require of, of of um not requirements, but of of desires. Like, what would a pilot want if we were going to design a new airplane? It's a wish list. And so, rather than build an airplane from the Steve Jobs model, they built an airplane from the uh, you know from the ground up. Like standing outside the tractor supply store, it's hacker culture. Yeah, leaning on a pickle barrel. Like, what do we need? And what it turned out was that bush pilots were not really interested. They didn't care if the plane was fast. And they didn't care if it was um, sleek. What they wanted was
1: a horse,
0: and they specified a lot of. They specified first of all, tons of power, but also a. a, a the, and short takeoff and landing, which makes sense. But they also. Just like a horse.
1: Yeah, just like a horse, right? <laughs> very, short, very short takeoff and landing. And
0: very much like a horse, they said, what we want is
1: big doors on the side <laughs> because we want to be able to load stuff in and out. Oh, that's interesting. Right? And that's, that's the kind a, of stuff that companies always do wrong. And then moms will be like, hey, minivans, the door should be on both sides, dummies. Right. Like, he, for some reason, they never ask the end user. And they did. You Know they did all this kind of consultation to the extent that Punch
0: Dickens ended up working for de Havilland, they just straight up hired him, like you be our, you be our liaison. But they, uh, the beaver was designed with doors that could open, uh, to accommodate a 50 gallon drum. Uh, the doors open in a, in a kind of a cool way, and you can load you can really load almost anything into a beaver. And what you if you
1: if you can't load it inside, you can strap it to the outside. So quicker turnaround. You don't have to spend all day trying to wrestle stuff. Get in. a ton of crates up the gangplank. But also, no. there's a
0: recognition that there's no gangplank. There's not a gangplank. No. There's a recognition. I think when you're servicing bush communities, that you don't know what they're going to need flown in there, and you don't. You really don't know what they're going to want flown out. And so, you make a plane that can that hopefully can do everything including like fly with missing parts and the one of the interesting features of a of a beaver is that the oil filler cap and the dipstick are inside the cockpit so you could in the event of a in the air (laughs) yeah you could in the event of an oil leak continue to just put oil into the motor like from inside the cockpit (laughs) lots of you know lots of things that you wouldn't you wouldn't think of unless you were, unless you had already abused planes. Yeah. But the way they got their power was during the war, the Pratt & Whitney company was responsible for, you know, it was one of sort of the big three aircraft engine manufacturers along with Rolls-Royce. And uh, Pratt & Whitney, Whitney had this sort of famous radial engine design, The uh, what they called the, the Wasp Junior. It was a- uh, Another if, insect. If you think of a radial- engine it's you see them on old planes um the they're the cylinders are arranged around the central hub mm-hmm. so it's not a it's not a you know a v8 or a you know it's not a row a, it's not a row that's right it's a it's they're in a circle and they fire around a central
1: hub it's a bagel it's a very powerful bagel it's an
0: extremely big donut with a fast moving propeller in the middle uh, and the wasp was made in profusion it was used in a lot of different airplanes it was used in the lockheed electra uh arguably one of the more beautiful airplanes ever built it was made in the it was used in the grumman goose which was uh, a seaplane that it's sort of you that you would see in old humphrey bogart movies all of these are great names for airplanes by the way the goose the it's Electra. still gone.
1: Is this Boeing's fault? And now it's like the seven seven seven. Yeah, the seven eight seven. That got boring. For crying out loud. Yeah. But everybody did it too. Like, why isn't Airbus or Embraer or somebody just getting back to? This yeah. is the glistening Condor. Yeah. Welcome that's aboard.
0: Right. Call it the. Call it the 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 red. Breasted sapsucker what
1: happened was our definition of cool changed yeah. you know once miniaturization and, and the technological age began what sounded smart was to say this is a airbus you know just have a code this yeah, is an right. a450x well it's true of cars
0: too right we yeah. don't there you don't have a the stingray anymore you have the uh, the a764s and it sounded cool if there was one of them
1: you know yeah the the what who, who used to do that mazda who, who had numbered cars jaguar right yeah the 626 the xj6 the they
0: all have numbers but once now. it's
1: just an alphabet soup then it's you know you can't i can't keep them apart
0: yeah what about an Eldorado? see or a sierra tango
1: or a esplanade well it gives the plane some personality when you're aboard a uh, an A, well, I can't think of a real Airbus. An A seven fifty A three hundred and sixty. I mean, it doesn't have any. That doesn't have any personality. No, you have no feeling toward A three hundred and sixty. Well, De Havilland Canada took a lesson from
0: uh, the fact that you didn't like the the insect names of De Havilland UK. That was nice of them, and they named their airplanes after. Mammals who do not fly. So there's the beaver. There's the otter.
1: They're Canadian, so it's it's clearly a nationalistic pride.
0: Yeah, they've got the they've they've got uh, they're
1: using the hardworking mammals of Canada. But there's the crucial problem that these do not fly. That you know you'd think the uh, the requirement. Oh, I see. For an airplane, like what quality does the beaver have in common with the plane of the same? I, mean, I guess you're, you're pointing out its industriousness. Industrious, right? Yes. Uh, the beaver. Is uh, is hardy? It uh, it really goes to your point about tail. how they didn't care about sleekness and performance or whatever. Right. You know the the point of these planes is not that they fly; it's that they can build a dam this big in such and such a time.
0: And I think you do end up running out of good birds after a while, right? I mean, you can call a thing a hawk, you can call it an eagle, you can call it a a condor. Do you think
1: that's the problem with the with numbered cars, it's, it's name exhaustion. Yeah, I mean, after you've done Jaguar, Tiger, Puma. I mean, they started inventing na- inventing words. Right. Elantra, Celica. Yeah. These have been engineered in a lab, but they're not real things. They're terrible names. Um,
0: yeah, eventually you just, yeah, you, you, you run out of ideas, which is terrible to think of that we've run out of ideas. We've even run out of made-up names. And we just we just get bored. It's well, the the world is run by engineers now. The poets are all in prison.
1: Look, it would would solve the if you had the poets. If you had the poets naming the planes, that would be jobs for poets. It would keep them out of trouble, it would keep them off the barricades. Jobs for poets, Uh, and uh, and you'd get better. You'd get better names for your tech. Yeah, it's an it's a poet a poet jobs program. I mean, that's exactly what the advertising industry is. It's creative writing majors who realize they actually needed to pay the bills and support their liquor habit.
0: But they're just writing like catalog descriptions, right? Like, this shoe is handcrafted by artisanal sewers. I know so many people that are copywriters and it just seems, I don't know, it seems
1: like it would break you. They don't get to name the thing, right? right. That's somebody else. But what's an
0: iMac, an iPod, an iPad? None of that's very
1: intriguing either. Those things could all be called like chrysanthemum or it's galling to me when they have the cool code name, like this is Jaguar. And then it comes out and like, this is iOS nine. It was Jaguar (laughs) internally. Now it's just (laughs) iOS nine. Like you guys could have done it. And you, at the last minute you were like, Nope. (sighs) Take us back to the beaver, John. Oh, back to the
0: beaver. Um, so in 1947, they started to manufacture, uh, the Beaver, and when you look at the Beaver, it does not look like a modern airplane. It kind of looks like a throwback uh, because it has this war surplus radial engine. As I was saying, the Pratt and Whitney made thirty nine thousand of these Wasp Junior uh, engines during the course of the war, so they had them stacked on pallets, and it um, it provided De Havilland with a with a cost effective and and you know, powerful source, 450 horsepower motor that they could put onto this plane that they were developing for all of the trappers and miners of the Northern Territories. Um, And so the plane debuts and it kind of is, um, now you look at it and it's a beautiful aircraft. But at the time, given how many beautiful airplanes were built in the 40s, it's a little bit of an ugly duckling. It's clunky. Extremely big wings for short takeoff and landing. What year is this? We're still in the late 40s. 1947. Oh, okay. Um the plane was made from 47 to 67. So for 20 years. Did it change uh, much or not really. They they tried a couple of different things. They put it they put turbocharger on it. Um eventually they they realized that they wanted a they actually wanted a turboprop version of it and started building a separate airplane called the Otter. And the Otter... Much as in life, the Otter is a... Is a turbocharged a, a, beaver. A turbocharged beaver. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and the Otter begat the twin Otter. All these planes are still flying and they're all still essential to the Bush communities.
1: Why is that? Why has there not been a successor that has improved on them? Or is it just because they were built so well that they... There's no need for a newer plane.
0: There's something, there's something about mid 20th century industrial design, uh, where so many companies just got it right. The first time, when you think about guitar design, the first mass produced electric guitar was the fender telecaster, which is still played by everybody unchanged. If you, if you, if you handed a 1952 telecaster, to any modern guitarist, they would be able to do everything with it
1: because it was perfect when it when it first arrived. But maybe now corporations have wised up. If you get it right the first time, right, you what can't you keep do? reselling somebody the new model every three. Well, years. Well,
0: except vendor keeps selling Telecasters.
1: Yeah, exactly. So one one company <laughs> can get in on the ground floor. Right. Everybody else is screwed.
0: Yeah, and and uh, you know the uh, one of De Havilland's competitors, this the Cessna company, an American company. Uh, Their airplane designs from the same era: the one hundred and fifty, the one hundred and seventy-two, the the one hundred and eighty-five, the, um, the the two hundred and six. Like these airplanes are also still all in service, and you can bo- you can go buy a, a Cessna one hundred and eighty from that was built in nineteen fifty-five, and it is competitive with modern airplanes. Are people still making parts? Absolutely, huh. absolutely. Uh, the the story of the beaver is curious. The air force, the U S air force realized that it, and the army realized that it was a very, uh, hardy airplane. And in the Korean war, the U S government bought a bunch of these to work as spotters and, and, uh, rough terrain kind of airplanes in the, you know, they weren't like fitted with missiles or anything, but they became sort of crucial, uh, to the wartime effort Just and then war courses. And then they were, they, they continued to serve in Vietnam. Um, and, and, and quite a few of them. So there were, there were over 1600 of these planes made during this 20 year period. But after they stopped being manufactured, uh, they didn't stop flying. They, they were extremely kind of bulletproof and prized. And so they remained in service. And, remained in service to such a degree that there started to be kind of a movement. Like why did we stop making this airplane? And I've heard that said about a lot of the products of kind of that mid-century period. Like if you think about the fact that right now, the, the Ford Mustang that they're selling you today is almost identical to the Ford Mustang of two, two thousand two. Uh, that that car design has remained in production for almost twenty years without changing. But if you think about the Pontiac GTO of nineteen sixty six, the GTO of nineteen sixty eight, and the GTO of nineteen seventy, they're completely different cars from one another, and each one of them a great version, you know, of a car. And uh, the 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 sense that uh, at the time that you needed to innovate in order to keep competitive on the marketplace. You needed to, you know, every new season required a whole rethink. Uh, We abandoned that a long time ago. We're just making the same thing over and over now uh, with minor
1: changes to the knobs and the brakes, I guess. Changes that seem kind of cynically made to say...
0: It's the new year. something new. Yeah. But in the case of the... um, in the case of the beaver, each new each thing that came along to replace it did have advantages, right? A turboprop. I mean, you can pressurize an airplane, and it becomes much more uh, useful if you want to fly long distances. You can make airplanes faster. You can make them even uh, take off and land uh, in in smaller distances. But there's something about the way that this plane was manufactured, where. With each additional level of technology, you make a thing harder to maintain, more expensive to maintain, things uh, things that break in the bush are
1: not repairable. I think about this with cars all the time. I rented a car this weekend that had some feature where if somebody was coming up to you on one of your sides, the, uh, a little light would turn on, on the uh-huh, side mirror. Uh-huh. And I'd never had that. And I realized, you know what? That's, that's an additional complexity to the car. This is, you know, 60 new parts or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've all gotten along fine without a little orange light on my side mirror when there's a car in my blind spot. I mean, I get why it's there. I'm not against it. I'm just saying soon this is going to be a required piece of – even if it's not regulatory, You know, people are going to want to have that piece of safety equipment, and you just made the car 0.8% more complicated. And you you can't – it's like a ratchet. You can't back off of that. Um, I rented a car –
0: Where uh, the first time I kind of, you know, when I drive, I sort of veer around. I mean, I, you know, the lane is just sort of this suggested area. Like all good drivers. I'm just like, I'm in the lane mostly, you know, like get off my back. Uh, But this car, as soon as it went across the, the lane dividing line. I could see. It went like the steering wheel shook. Yes. And I was like, what the? And so I did it again and it shook again. And I was like, this is a danger. Like this is, I hate this. And I, you know, I know, I I assumed that it was something, it was an option you could turn off. And I scrolled through 50 screens on their little heads up display until I figured out which one was the driver assist that I could turn off. And finally did. But if I was just a regular, you know, if I was some regular person who rented this car that was like, well, I guess that's what it does. It, you know, there's nothing about the car to suggest, it's not, it doesn't explain what it's doing. Yeah, You could probably drive this thing for a month and not realize every once in a while, I bet there are people that take it into the mechanic <laughs> or like every once in a while it does
1: this crazy thing. Some features are so bad they will get backed off of. Like when cars used to have the seat belts that would close, the, the shoulder belts that would close themselves when you closed the door. Right. I'm, I don't know if somebody got an arm cut off or a baby's head cut off or something, but those are not yeah. around anymore. But it, that almost never happens. Typically these things are cumulative. And what was once a very simple and beloved product just gets buried under 500 new features. I think what
0: happened with that seatbelt, because I think this happened to me personally, I climbed into the car, shut the door, and the seatbelt started to retract. And I had like a big Coke or something, you know, like a (laughs) 32-ounce Coke, and the seatbelt just went right across it and just pressed it to your – or maybe it was an ice cream cone, something – and I think that was, that probably happened to enough people that they were like,
1: oh, you got to turn If it happens off. to one vice president, if somebody gets ice cream on his tie, those go away.
0: Well, what happened with De Havilland Canada in 1986, the government of Canada privatized it. Or in the 80s, I guess, the Canadian government got out of, you know, the socialist Canadians got out of the airplane manufacturing mm-hmm. business and decided to let free enterprise run its course and take over in efficiencies. Uh, and then of course in 86, it was sold to Boeing because that's what happens. If you, if you privatize something, it's going to end up in the hands of Boeing. They always get it. So Boeing owned de Havilland for a while. And then in 92 sold it to Bombardier, which is a Canadian airplane company. So it got, it became, you know, a Canadian owned enterprise again. Uh, and then Bombardier, uh, is sort of an interesting chapter. We fly their airplanes a lot here in uh, in America because they are making the, you know, they make a lot of the commuter aircraft that are now doing the Delta run from Seattle to San Francisco. Yeah, I was on one of these the other day. They make the Dash, uh, you know, that Dash 800. That's a very popular turboprop. But there's a company in Victoria, Canada called Viking Air. And Viking Air is... Uh, like Kenmore Air that flies out of Lake Union that we talked about earlier, they are actually, they fly a lot of uh, de Havilland beavers. And so much so that they are, and they're keeping these old airplanes in the air, that they've made significant enough modifications to the beaver that the Kenmore Air beaver has become a sort of prized example of the airframe. Oh, so people do make kind of copycat Kenmore... Well, no, that if, if Kenmore ever sells a, like Kenmore rehabs beavers for the open market and a Kenmore beaver is like a, um, if you own one, it's a specially, it's like a Foose Corvette or something. It's a specially modified airplane that, that takes on its own kind of legendary status. But Bombardier sold the, all of the blueprints and the, um the the schematics for the beaver to this company viking air and viking air has been threatening to start manufacturing
1: the beaver again so it would be one of these zombie products like like polaroid that people miss and comes back. Comes back, except not as a
0: not as a digital app on your phone that l- looks like a Polaroid. Oh no, I guess you're saying Polaroid. Pe- people
1: did make the photochemical, or some somebody got the rights to make photochemical Polaroid alike.
0: It 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 really is, and I, I I feel like we're at a point, um, in some of the products that we just described, where, at least with an internal uh, internal combustion engine driven four door car, we've reached. Innovation saturation, peak car, and really, all I want is just to have a 1957 Chevy or something. You know, just a thing that you can fix with your own hands. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't need all this other stuff. And whatever innovations have happened, and they're you know too numerous to mention in small aircraft design, there's a reason that beavers are still flying everywhere and prized by bush pilots everywhere. Regarded as you know one of the most agile and useful planes um, so far, and Viking does manufacture a version of the Otter, uh, but they haven't yet come around to um, f- to fully going into production making, and they make you know they make parts for Beavers, but then Viking was acquired by uh, the the melodiously named Longview Aviation Capital. Uh, I'm,
1: I'm sure things will go well for them now. <laughs> now they've been bought out by... Although
0: Longview Aviation Capital is owned by the granddaughter of the founder of the Thompson newspaper family empire of Canada. So she's a, you know, a Canadian, not just a, uh, it's not just a faceless holding company.
1: It's going to strip it for parts.
0: The Longview Aviation Capital
1: is just a terrible name. It should have been called the Chrysanthemum. Everything should be called the Chrysanthemum to you. This is kind of a reassuring trope for people of a certain age, right? That our generation of simpler stuff that you could fix with a wrench is going to outlive all these, uh, you know, think of the old guy who can't program the timer on his DVR or his microwave or whatever. Right. He's reassured that, no, he was right to have a toaster oven. All this new stuff is awful.
0: Well, I think it's it's funny because from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, a, a lot of innovation happened in industrial design and mechanical production. You know, things were invented and then improved upon, but we did arrive at a place where our cultural innovation started to happen in social realms. Like if you think of where we were in 1905 uh, and where we were in 1965 in terms of airplanes, cars, motorcycles, guns, machines, there was a tremendous leap that happened in that 50 years. Well, between 1965 and 2015, we're still driving cars, flying airplanes, and riding motorcycles that are all based in those early designs.
1: I think you're right. Some kind of actual hard physical threshold was
0: reached. But if you think of the social innovations that happened between 1905 and
1: 1965, well...
0: There was still we were still kind still of
1: lynching the same yeah, number right? of
0: people I guess but from 65 to 2015 the progress we made in in social uh,
1: technology was enormous. Now we have now that our cars are good enough we can finally figure out like how to Jim Crow and stuff right Now the, the problem
0: is now we need to make that same uh, leap in the next 50 years in our political. Uh, universe. I right? like
1: how you've got your you've got your bestseller already to go. That's it. The, the Roderick Century.
0: Not the Roderick Century, man. We need to make that
1: same great
0: leap forward.
1: And that concludes the De Havilland Beaver. Entry 328.DE0203. Certificate number 35435 in the omnibus. Now speaking of social innovations that went nowhere, oh dear! Facebook, Twitter, Instagram—we uh, got them all for you. If, if that exists in your era, <laughs> look us up on at Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick. Um, you know, we already perfected all our physical stuff, so we decided to ruin our lives online. Uh, there, uh, the Futurelings congregate on Facebook under a group of that name, mm. also on Reddit yep. and on uh, some Discord. Discord, John, Discord now. Yeah, John tells me. Um, I'm now the old guy who can't set the timer on his microwave because i am not going to figure out discord in order to hang out there sorry friends um if uh perfected physical items are what you would like to send us you uh you can do that via the old-fashioned way of the u.s mail i have a i have a full mail bag here today
0: any any new uh stuffed goats what do you got in there anything any cool books from new Zealand?
1: Some, uh, a bunch of postcards. This one has, this one is actually of uh, of Tikal, which we talked about on Tuesday's show. Somebody went to Tikal just in advance of me and sent me a postcard.
0: That had, that was sent by them not knowing you had gone to Tikal?
1: They knew, apparently, they knew I was going to Belize, but not that we had done this show. They recommend to bring bug spray and ponchos, which we did. Both things? We did bring bug spray and ponchos. Were there a lot of bugs? Uh, I, I think I was getting bit on my legs. We didn't have to pull part of a tick out of anyone, okay, which is good, what you don't good. want. Just some mosquito bites. Mark sent you a uh, Bonaparte family tree postcard. You know, I you can pass that I along love to your that mom. Mark
0: sent that to me. Uh, and
1: I have to confess, I already have that uh, Bonaparte <laughs> postcard, but we can't made, have too many. Did we do this on the show? Did we, like? Have you received multiples of this? I don't think so. Well, now you've got one to trade. One to rock and one to stock. Uh, I think in the French Revolutionary episode, we may have mentioned that Liberté, Égalité, and Fraternité was a bit patriarchal. Oh, okay. So what does this say? This is somebody who was already selling Liberté, Égalité, and Sororité oh. t-shirts. Now, sisterhood.
0: which one of our daughters is going to get that shirt?
1: Probably both, and I don't know. I don't know. Do, will your daughter wear what you give her? Uh, yeah, Still Well no My daughter will wear Baggy feminist t-shirts Till the cows come home Sorry right. well, Why don't we uh, I think this is gonna be a win But we have two Why don't we give that to Kate We do have two.
0: Oh, okay Well which one does she want the, the, the blue or the black Marla's gonna
1: have to age into Yeah So thank you Don Thank you Don Those are great Wait that's not from Don I lied Thank you uh, Rebecca, thank you. Oh, Rebecca, thank you, Rebecca. She, uh, this was something she made on Cotton Bureau, and proceeds went to uh, Planned Parenthood.
0: Well, fortunately, we both have daughters, and they both are going to rock those shirts.
1: Um, who is this from? Barbara Ann uh, sent me a picture of a Labrador Retriever guide dog, which is cute, and wants to know if I'll be doing. Uh, literacy benefit in uh, Bellingham. I will, Barbara, but I'm sure by the time you hear this, it's already happened. Last time you got the World War II gift, Dawn is, uh, apparently heard me lament that I don't get cool stuff in the mail. So she sent me... She sent
0: you the uh, the, the instruction manual for her 97 Civic? She sent me,
1: kind of, Star Wars blueprints. Whoa. Completely detailed design for the sets and effects of the greatest space fantasy universe. Whoa! And this appears to be... Well, why, why, don't just pull that halfway out. Pull well, it out. These are actual blueprints. Here's um. Here's Luke's uh, land speeder, if you want to build one. Oh, get out of Dodge. That's the coolest thing I ever saw. There, It's an actual booklet. And I think this is some kind of mid-early uh, 80s period Star Wars collectible, which is maybe valuable. I don't know. Are I'm, you going I'm to... I'm going to put my kids through college on this.
0: Are you going to frame those and put them up on your... Put them up in the wall of your office?
1: Absolutely. She says, you can tell she's a Star Wars fan. She says, live long and prosper. Oh. Thank you, Don. Uh, live long, live long and prosper. So you could, you could also send us physical items like these at PO Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington 98155. John's got a new house to fill with junk. So he's excited.
0: It's modern. It's modernist. And I, I, uh, it has to be really good
1: junk. We do get really good junk. We do. Uh, You could uh, contribute to the show with your uh, financial lucre.
0: We cannot uh, overstate how much we appreciate it.
1: It has been so gratifying that people care enough about the show to keep it in business. Um, And if you are not one of those people, if you're some kind of awful free rider, but this is the moment when you think, you know what, I'm going to step up and I'm going to contribute. We would love that. Go to patreon.com slash omnibus project. Every pledge, no matter how small helps further the cause. Did I cover everything? I think everything's covered. Right. Everything's covered with
0: a warm weighted Ken blanket.
1: And hundreds of Bonaparte family tree
0: postcards. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, um, we cannot know that in the future, probably most futurelings identify as Canadians and probably most futurelings are, if not riding around in rehabbed, Beavers or or remanufactured beavers are themselves sentient De Havilland
1: beavers. <laughs> what are the odds that the futurelings are actual beavers or Canadian flying airplane beavers?
0: It may be that they are they are uh, actual beavers and they object to the De Havilland being named the Beaver in the same way that we object the, the Cleveland Washington, to the uh, Washington Redskins, yeah, or the and, Cleveland Indians, right. So on behalf of ourselves, we
1: apologize for not knowing but if at the time. But if they're sentient planes with whose noses are propellers and eyes are cockpit windows, yeah. then you don't care. You did it. You outlived the, the organic beavers. Yeah, Good that's job. right.
0: You're like beaver. It's just some kind of pterodactyl that existed many years ago. Just like the, the Cleveland pterodactyls.
1: Uh Toronto Raptors I think oh. would be the only sports team named for a non-existent animal. Is, is that it true? a raptor non-existent? No, raptors are No, but it's it's a, in the logo it's a velociraptor. Oh. A velociraptor. Oh, you know what? Raptor. I believe the Nashville Predators or wait, Memphis Predators, where do the Predators play? Do they
0: have a dinosaur?
1: The Memphis Predators, T-rex? I think their predator is a um I think it's a saber toothed tiger. Oh. The uh the Nashville Predators of the NHL. Are Seahawks still alive? I don't know if
0: that's, that's kind of a mythical bird, right? Oh, yeah, it's they, like a thunder.
1: They bring out an osprey at the beginning of each game, no, which is what a sea eagle. Sea eagle. So I don't know if a seahawk is actually a thing, but there was a Errol Flynn movie called The Seahawk, and right. Errol Flynn was very into Al- Olivia De Havilland. I don't. I, he was. I don't know about her. Beaver. And she
0: lives first cousins of
1: D- Joffrey, the last surviving De Havilland.
0: Well, we hope and pray that, uh, I mean, we hope and pray that you are happy, future beavers. Uh, and we hope and pray that the catastrophe that will wipe us off the face of the earth, making room for you, never comes. But if the worst comes soon, basically, we're, we're playing both sides against the middle. We're both anding. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the on